Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 126 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. This week I have a plan for feeding the top bar hive and a thorough explanation of uniting two colonies in preparation for winter. Beekeeping Short and Sweet a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm grateful to Honeypore Hives for sponsoring in part our podcast for this season. Honeypore Hives, as I'm sure you're aware, are Polly Langstroth Hives, and we're setting up an apiary full of their hives this season, courtesy of Honeypore. Check out their range of hives and other equipment on their website, and I'll leave links to all of the websites in the show notes as usual. Honeypore Hives, designed by beekeepers for beekeepers. Hello again and welcome back to the podcast. It's been a pretty uneventful week with the bees. Walking around the apiaries at this time of the year is so very calming. Maybe not for the bees, of course, as they race around trying to find every last grain of pollen and every last drop of nectar. And then, of course, the beekeeper comes along and dumps a load of sugar syrup on top of them. I wonder if upon discovering the syrup they get excited. Anyway, I was struck by how lucky I am this week. We were over at the Fishing Lakes apiaries filming our weekly content, and in between apiaries there's a chance now to sit and watch the bees, and in fact lots of other winged creatures. The Fishing Lakes attract a huge variety of birds, and not being a twitcher, my recognition skills are not so great. To confirm this, I posted a picture to our social media streams in the late spring of what I took to be a sparrow hawk. Of course, I was immediately corrected and told it was in fact a kestrel. It wasn't hovering in the sky like kestrels do, it was in a, a nest box, so I'm trying to forgive myself for making the mistake, but you can always rely on social media to jump straight in and correct you when you get it wrong. Anyway, as I was saying, the peaceful apiary locations I have are absolutely fantastic, and the lakes are at their very best right now. Early mornings at the lakes reveal a huge number of spider webs, all sagging under the weight of the overnight dew. I think these would go unnoticed later in the day when the water has evaporated. I wonder if the spiders actually move around their webs cleaning the water off or even drinking it. I'm sure someone out there will have the answer, I'm sure. So the fishing lakes provide a fantastic escape from the hustle and bustle of everyday stresses and strains. And if it weren't for the traffic noise from the southern bypass that curves around the bottom half of Norwich, it would seem idyllic. Just sat watching the hives reveals a wealth of information that you might not always pick up on if you head straight into the hive, as I find I have to do at our busiest times of the year. Then there's no time to sit with a drink and marvel at the comings and goings at the hive entrance. Right now there's a lot of ivy pollen coming in, bright yellow legs laden with protein for the collective food stores and no doubt lots of nectar from the same source. I was surprised, actually, by the lack of wasps at these apiaries, given that a couple of our other apiaries were having a real battle with hundreds of wasps. They're like raiding parties, sneaking in at the edges of the hive entrances, 
and escaping with contraband while the helpless bees look on. That, of course, is in the very weakest colonies. Those wasps wouldn't get anywhere near the precious stores of the strongest hives. Guard bees mill around the entrances, checking and rechecking as each new arrival heads into the hive, and when wasps attempt to get in, all hell breaks loose. As I said, here at the fishing lakes, we've had a relatively wasp-free start to autumn, and the bees have really packed away the stores, and I'm feeling fairly relaxed about how things are progressing. The treatments are still in the hives. This year we're using Apitraz again, although I have noticed in one or two nukes we've hit a brood break. It looks to have coincided with the application of the treatments because they have no open brood or any larvae at any stage at all, and the queens are just starting to lay eggs again. I'm hoping the effect of this is that more of the varroa mites have become exposed to the treatment and will be removed from the hive as we head towards the winter. I've only checked a couple of the nukes, really. Most of the full-size colonies were checked a couple of weeks ago, and with everything being fine, there's really not a great need to check them again until spring. The Fishing Lakes site is where we have our top bar hive experiment, and this week I finally got round to sorting out the feeder for it. To be fair, Pete did all the construction work according to my plans, so it was a case of popping to the workshop and picking up the feeder rather than making it myself. I mentioned it last week and thought you might like to hear the follow-up saga because it has been a bit of a saga. To give you some idea of the feeder shape and dimensions, it basically fits inside the top bar hive body, so is a triangular shape. It takes up about the space of four top bars, perhaps 25 centimetres wide or thereabouts. It has a removable clear plastic lid, which sits in a little recess that Pete has cut into it, and has a slit cut into one side that measures about a centimetre high and maybe 15 centimetres wide. This is to let the bees into the feeder and access to the syrup. I had been pondering how we should feed them for some time, and the fondant question was still in my mind. Perhaps it would have been better to simply give them fondant. Anyway, we have the syrup feeder now, so we should get on and use it. You may have already seen the video on Patreon and know what's coming, but for those of you yet to see the video, the plan was to insert the feeder at the side of the top bars closest to the comb, where the bees could get straight into it and get storing syrup. Just one problem. My measurements weren't quite right. I say weren't quite right. The feeder was actually about four inches too tall. I sometimes wish I could remember to check out these things before committing everything to video. Anyway, we were already shooting the video and I thought, well, we may as well continue and like so many beekeepers, come up with an alternative solution to the problem. Fondant. It was sitting there in the back of the truck and I could easily pack some into the side of the top bar hive for the bees to feed on and still keep everything nicely enclosed to prevent robbing by other bees and those pesky wasps. I could probably have added a lot more fondant than I did, but in the end opted for three kilos in the form of three one kilo bags. I cut a hole in each bag, quite large holes at this time of the year, to let the bees have full access and placed them around the side walls and the floor of the hive nearest the outside top bar that had comb on it. The bees were straight on it, so it will be interesting to see how quickly they devour all three kilos. 
I'm going to head back again next week to see what they've done and hopefully to try the feeder once again. Of course, I'll have to head back to the workshop and get Pete to take a saw to the bottom half. Although I think it's a simple fix. Cut the excess from the bottom and fit a little more plywood. The bees themselves were really calm. Remember, this colony was a swarm I collected way back from the oilseed rape pollination, and the entire process of setting up the top bar hive, introducing the bees, and watching them progress over the summer has been a fantastic experiment and given me a lot of pleasure. If you're listening to this and you haven't subscribed to Patreon, then do sign up and have a look at the full series of videos of the top bar hive. It's been really good fun. I've not taken any honey from them this year as I wanted to establish them in the hive nice and securely and make sure they get to overwinter successfully, preferring to leave them all of their honey as I'm still very inexperienced with taking a crop from a top bar hive and knowing what they'll need to be left with for the winter. At last count I think we had 13 top bars in total and that includes one that is only partially drawn. Most of them, at some point, had brood in them, so the colony grew to a decent size over the summer. Maybe next year, and I say maybe, but maybe we could look to harvest outside combs at the end of July and replace with fresh top bars that could be rotated through the hive so the old comb could be removed and replaced, in a similar fashion to replacing comb in a framed hive. Something to think about over the winter months, perhaps. I would definitely operate another top bar hive. All I need to do is to find someone to make me another one. On the subject of making hives, I'm looking for ideas for our next project for this winter. We currently have hives in a range of different sizes. Commercial, National, National Deep or 14 by 12s Langstroths and the top bar hive. What I'd like is suggestions for the next type of hive we should try. It'll be great to add something else to the range that we can show you all. I'd like to try something a little different, but I'm not keen on lifting a jumbo Dayton hive. So if you have any ideas about a weird and wonderful hive you'd like me to try out, then do get in touch. One of the hives I'm thinking about may be a Dartington hive. If you haven't heard of this hive before, it's basically a rectangular form of the top bar hive, so that it takes standard frames rather than just a top bar. You might be familiar with the hive called a bee house. This is a very smart looking brightly coloured plastic version of a long hive and a long hive is basically what the top bar and dartington hives are. I inspected one of these many years ago as a bee inspector and it was pretty straightforward to deal with. Maybe the manufacturers would like to send me a sample to try out. You know what they say, don't ask, don't get. Let me know if you have any bright ideas about the type of hive you'd like to see me use next season, and I'll discuss it with the team here. That means, of course, bullying Pete into making it for me, but, well, he loves the challenge. On a different subject, I've had a couple of questions about uniting colonies for the winter, and now seems like a really good time to mention it. This is something I've been really terrible at in the past. The thought of uniting two colonies and reducing the total number of hives I have has somehow always played in the back of my mind and made me think I could somehow get smaller or weaker colonies through the winter months where other beekeepers have tried and failed before. Each and every time, come spring, 
I'm looking at several colonies that have died because they were just too small to survive. They don't starve, it's the cold that gets to them. There comes a point, sometime after Christmas normally, where the older worker bees gradually die off and the colony, being small, doesn't have a large brood area and the bees dying off are not replaced in sufficiently large numbers to maintain a critical mass of bees to keep the temperature high enough for more brood to be taken care of and survive the very coldest winter days and nights of January and February. What happens is they die of bee hypothermia. They get so cold they can't keep the cluster warm enough and eventually they all succumb. This year I've made a promise to myself that apart from nucleus colonies in nuke boxes, any full-size hive with less than four full seams of bees is going to be united or held in a twin nuke next to another nuke of a similar size. By that I mean I have nuke boxes in the commercial nuke box size that fit together side by side beneath a standard roof and when strapped tightly together provide mutual warmth between the centre, enough to give them the warmth that they need to survive. I've used this method over many many years and it works really well. Of course they still need to be queen right and have plenty of food but it's the cold that usually gets them in the long run. This setup seems to work really nicely. So one of the questions I was asked about uniting colonies was whether the queen right colony goes on top or beneath the queenless colony. More about this in a moment but it does bring up another question you might be uniting two colonies that actually queen right. So how do you decide which to keep and which to sacrifice? Well, I'm sorry to say that's really down to you. You know your bees and how they've performed, whether they are grumpy bees or calm bees, whether they have a tendency to be frugal or need lots of food. What I would advise is be very careful about uniting colonies that may have disease. Not the two nasty ones, AFB or EFB, but things that sometimes go unnoticed, such as CBPV or chalk brood, for instance. Just have a good look at them before you unite them. Uniting colonies ideally needs to be done by the end of this month, September, but I've united colonies well into October successfully. Sometimes you don't have any control over the situation and just have to get on with it. So here's what I do to unite them. Firstly, I like to get them close together and facing the same direction. This may mean moving hives and stands and changing the way your apiary is currently set up, so get onto that as quickly as possible. I'll normally move both hives to another apiary just to avoid confusion and drifting between other colonies. You'll need a newspaper of some sort. Personally, I like the freebie advertiser ones. It's the beekeeper in me, I guess. You'll also need a queen excluder, and this serves two purposes, which I'll come on to. Firstly, break down both colonies to the brood box, and if you have to remove a queen, carry out an inspection to find her. Once she's been um, taken care of, you can unite the hive quite easily. You may need someone to help with the lifting, as these brood boxes can get really quite heavy at this time of the year. Open up your newspaper of choice, and lay it down on top of the now queenless brood box and place the queen excluder on top of this. Grab your hive tool and pop a couple of small slits in the newspaper beneath the queen excluder. This just makes it easier for the bees to start chewing through the paper and uniting the colonies. Next, 
place the queen right brood box on top of the queen excluder. Make sure you check the floor to see if the queen has run down onto it and if she's there just chase her onto the top bars of her brood box. Shake the remaining bees off the floor and remove the floor away from the newly created double brood box. Put on the crime board and the roof on top of that and remove all other spare equipment. That's it. It's really as simple as that. Now, why put the queen right colony on top? This again is one of those choices beekeepers have and for me it makes sense to put her in the top box for a number of reasons. Firstly, I want to keep her trapped in the top box and not have the ability to run out of the hive if things go sideways in some way. It's never happened to me yet, but you do hear stories. Secondly, we're uniting them for the winter and at some point I want to remove the queen excluder. It's simpler to lift the top box off rather than having to lift both boxes off if you've decided to put the queen excluder between the floor and the bottom box. And lastly, I prefer for my double brood colonies, or brood and a half, to have the brood nest in the top part of the hive, away from the cool winds and draughts that might blow through them over the winter. Give them a couple of days, and you should see telltale signs of shredded newspaper on the floor outside the hive, where the bees have chewed through the paper and cleaned up after themselves. A few more days, and you can go back in and check that all is well, and remove the queen excluder job done. Follow this routine and I'm sure you'll have complete success in uniting smaller colonies to overwinter and be ready for a fast start in the spring with strong healthy colonies. That's it for this week. Don't forget the new annual subscriptions are available now on my Patreon page and grab two months free subscription. That's regardless of what level content you sign up for. Simply head over to the webpage patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey and select access to the content that you would like. The offer for two months free access is available until the end of September, so do make sure you look at it before it expires. I know that a lot of you listening will already be supporters and have subscribed to the annual subscription, and I'm grateful for your patronage. Links to relevant information will, as usual, be in the podcast notes, but until next week, I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was Beekeeping Short and Sweet. (laughs) 